Amen, amen. Uh, wow, that was an intro. Um, <laughs> I love this church. Um, I, I love Pastor Chris. Um, and uh, we, are, we are good friends and true brothers. And so it's amazing. Uh, what a message this morning. Yes. Wow. Yes, Pastor Dan, I don't know if you'll hear this. Is this being recorded or something? Uh, no? Okay, well. Anyway, Pastor Dan did such a great job on that message. And it's, good, it's so dope because you're going to find out in a minute. So he, he and I, the only conversation he and I had about our messages was uh, we just, I just said, well, what scripture reference are you using? So that, you know, and, and that way, you know, we don't end up using the same scripture reference. Uh, and, but the way this is going to connect is going to be awesome. And it's just God is all over it. And so that message this morning was, was powerful. And I believe that it truly was foundational for where God is taking us because there's going to be parts of what, in fact, I almost was like, oh, he's going to preach my sermon, which great, praise God. And, uh, and so I'm excited for what, how God is going to uh, close out this session. But before we go there, uh, what I want to do is I just want to honor uh, the shepherd, uh, the uh, the shepherd of this house um, who serves under the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And, and I just praise God for you, Pastor Eric. And you are amazing um, in every way. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's really incredible uh, what the Lord uh, does through you. Um, and in all honesty, uh, I, uh, you know, you talk to people that have sized churches that you have and stuff like that. And, and there's a certain, there's a certain untouchableness that, that they kind of, you know, present, not you, uh, you are very approachable. You're very humble and you have a passion, uh, to really, uh, shape others. And for that, in ways that you don't even know, uh, I am grateful for that. I really am. And so can we just show some love to Pastor Eric this afternoon? Praise God. Praise God. All right, we're going to get started because we have some cheeseburgers to eat, apparently. And, uh, you know, that's just how this goes. So at first I was like, okay, I'm going to take my time with this message. But they started announcing cheeseburgers, and I felt the Holy Spirit say, hurry up. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it. So, uh, message. So, I just want to talk to you for a moment about uh, this: real fights, but false victories. Okay. Real fights, but false victories. Real fights, but false victories. I went to the doctor recently, and uh, you know, I just go there to get certain things checked every once in a while, and and usually the results the same. He just says I'm fat, and I say I know. He says work out, I say I know. And he says, you promise you're going to do it? I say, uh, you know, and so uh, type of thing. And he gives me this lecture and I listen and, you know, whatever, right? Uh, and, uh, but, but recently uh, he had to put me on um, some heart medication, some blood pressure medication, blood pressure. And he said, and he began to talk to me. He said, listen, I'm going to put you on blood pressure medication, but your blood pressure has been really high and I'm really worried. He goes, because I don't want you out there running and then you just fall over. You know, I don't want you out there jogging, running around, and you just fall over. And I said, doctor, that will never, ever happen. He says, how do you know? I said, because I don't run. Do not run. I barely walk. Right? Don't. It does not happen. 
And, but he began to talk to me the importance of, of what, uh, you know, of my heart and have to keep it healthy and so on and so forth. And it is so true. And this morning, uh, really, as we are discussing what this idea of fighting in Christ, right? This idea of, of being men who are warriors and fighters, but who draw our strength from Jesus Christ. Um, and what's important is that your heart matters. Your heart matters. So we're going to get into this because I want to hurry up. Look, look, in the middle of your Bible, there's this book called the Book of Psalms. And uh, over half of that is attributed to King David, right? And uh, what's beautiful about the Book of Psalms in general is that not only do we see what's going on in his life, but we also see what's going on in his soul. Not just his life, he, he does, we don't just see this sort of presentation outwardly, but we also get to sneak peek of what's going on inwardly. And the, the reality is, is that we see not just these outward battles, but we also see his inward battles, right? And we see that through these Psalms that there is a wrestling, that there's a wrestling. And... Uh, really, when it comes down to understanding uh, what it is that David is doing here, I believe that the Lord wants to impress upon us about our hearts and what it is to be in the fight. Because the reality is, is that for most of you, when it comes to fighting, uh, whether it's emotionally, mentally, spiritually, exhaustion has taken place. In fact, exhaustion to the point of even where there's certain numbness in certain areas of your life, where you don't even, you could be in a room, right? And brother could be, you know, jumping up and down and falling out in the spirit and, and speaking in tongues and running around and hooting and hollering and all this other stuff till his dentures fall out or whatever, right? I mean, he could be, and you don't feel a thing. You don't feel a thing, right? And, 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 so, there, and so sometimes there's areas within us that it's just not, or what used to, uh, what, what used to cause us or force us to go to prayer, now we're just used to. We're just used to. You see what I'm saying? We don't pray against that anymore because now it's become a custom. And so what I wanna do is I wanna read really quick in Psalms 119, and I'm gonna read three verses from that Psalm, and it just says this. It says, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I've inclined my heart. I've inclined it. I've inclined it. I, I had to set it. I had to, I had to set up my heart. I had to check it and set it, and I had to position it. I had to position it to perform your statutes. It be, be, because the reality is, is that every day your heart is going to be tempted to decline instead of incline. It's going to be tempted to decline in the default position of despair or discouragement or dysfunction, right? And what you need to know is that you are in charge of your heart. You are in charge of who you give it to and what you do with it and who you submit it to. And Proverbs tells us to guard our hearts, to guard them, tells us to guard them, right? So the heart is important. It's important. And we have to, it's not, it's not one of those things where we can just set our heart once and then forget it. 
It's not like one of those things where we can come to the Lord and give our heart to Jesus Christ. Now we're saved. Okay, our heart will forever now be in a position pointed to you. No, 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 no. We have to continuously examine and self-examine and re-examine and check our heart again and then recalibrate it and then set it up again and then recalibrate and then come back again and ask some questions and look at where our heart is because if we do not do that then, what happens is our heart will begin to go back to how it is naturally functioning. Verse 13, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield, and and I hope in your word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this, these men that you have gathered, Lord God. Before you ever hung a star in the sky, God, before you ever made time or space or energy or matter, you saw this day. Heavenly Father, you knew exactly who was going to be in the room. You orchestrated it. You calculated it, God. And so because of that, Heavenly Father, we can trust you, Lord. We can know, Heavenly Father, that we are not here just because, but Lord God, that there is purpose. And that this message has been anointed for such a time as this. So, Lord God, I pray that you give us what you know we need. Not what we think we need, but what you know we need. Because oftentimes, Lord, we can come to you with what we think we need. But, Lord, you know that there is a need under that need. And, Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning that you meet that. And that you will galvanize us, Heavenly Father, for the fight. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. When you look at the entire Psalms, you need to ask this question, what could David have been going through that would cause him to experience such range of emotions? We know that David has range of motion, right? We know that by looking at his battle with Goliath, he has range of motion. We know that by how the fact that he tackled and killed lions and wolves and bears, oh my, with his bare hands right? He has range of motion. But what the Psalms lets us know is that he also has range of emotions, of emotions, of emotions. And the scripture declares that God is my defender. But the reality is, is if the scripture declares that God is my defender and that no weapon formed against me will prosper, If that's true, then why is it then that oftentimes I feel under siege? We're not going to be real this morning? Okay. Why is it? Why is it that if I know that no weapon formed against me will prosper, if I, if I know that to be true, then why do I feel under siege? Part of it is because it does not say that no weapon will be formed. It doesn't say that. It says no weapon that is formed will prosper. Weapons will be formed to come against you. Do not fool yourselves into thinking that because you gave your life to Jesus Christ, now all of a sudden, no weapons will be formed. Oh no, they'll be formed. They just won't prosper. They just won't prosper. And so what we have to understand is we have to reconcile the life that David wrote with the life that David lived. Because we see David declaring things in the Psalms, truths in the Psalms, but then we see him under attack often and fighting. We see him proclaim how he is victorious, but yet 
He is in battle. We see him proclaim how he is filled with peace and yet he is in a fight. How can you be filled with peace and fighting? How is that possible? You see what I'm saying? And so there's something that has to be reconciled between what we know about God and what our lives reflect. And so what we see is this, is that we know that God is not your refuge from trouble, but he is your refuge, what? In trouble. He is not your refuge from trouble. The promises of God is not that you will not be in difficult situations. The promise is that his presence will be with you. In fact, the promise is that you'll go through hell and crap and everything else that goes with it, but his promise, he says, I promise you're gonna go through that. I guarantee it. You're gonna go through it. But what I also guarantee is if you are saved, if you are a Christian this morning, if, if Jesus Christ is your savior, then his presence will be there with you. And that makes a difference. That makes a difference. And so when we understand that alone, that would answer many of your questions about the operative nature of faith, that God is not my refuge from trouble, but that God is my refuge in trouble. And sometimes in your life, you think you're in trouble, but you're not, you're in training. See, what you call problems, what you call trouble is training. You see? So what you see as trouble, God sees as training. And this is why, oh, y'all ain't ready. So this is why, this is why when you're praying for God to change your circumstance and it doesn't change, it's because you're praying for God to change your circumstance and God is trying to change you. And so he's not going to take away the circumstance because you are being changed in the process. You are being changed through it. Y'all don't hear that. But in verse 28, for example, it says, my soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. So what we see is we see David calling on God to be his strength. But then there are many times where we see his struggle. So we see God, we see David in strength, but we also see David in struggle. For instance, in in Samuel 19, when you look at his struggle, then you begin to understand his strength. And it's important to understand his struggle because if you do not understand his struggle, then you will misunderstand his strength. But there has to be struggle because you cannot have crowns without crosses. It's not possible. You cannot have champions without fights. It's impossible. So what I want to do is I want to look at his struggle that we may better understand his strength for the battle. Is that good? That way we don't misunderstand it. So let's look into it. This is what it says. So when we look at what's happening in 1 Samuel is women are beginning to dance and sing on the streets about David. And they're saying things like, well, King Saul killed his thousands, but, but David killed his tens of thousands. Well, King Saul did not like that very much. So he shut that song down real quick. 
right? And, then, and, and so that's what happens. And now we're in chapter 19. And there's a battle between David and Saul. And it's because God's hand has been taken off of Saul and put onto David. And now David is in a unique task of trying to serve someone who is threatened by his potential. Not only that, but Saul is distressed because Saul knows that he's slipping. He's slipping. And, and, And he's trying to catch himself, but he can't. And he's acting crazy because he's trying to fix stuff that he should have just left alone. You, you know what I'm talking about? Do you, do you ever try to fix something and you should have just left it alone because now it's becoming the very thing that you were hoping that it wouldn't become? You see what I'm saying? You go to God and say, hey, God, you know, you do it. I can't do it. No, never mind. I'm going to do it. Yeah, I, on Sunday morning, I say, I trust you, but not really. Right? Not really. And so, and so now Saul is dealing with the problem of knowing that he is losing control. And he's trying to take matters into his own hands and it's backfiring on him. And so what happens is Saul is in distress and he calls David up to play some music so that way it could calm his mind. And while David was playing, the Bible says that Saul sat in his house with his spear in his hand. That's kind of creepy. That while he was sitting in his house, he was just holding this giant spear in the corner somewhere, like in the dark corner. You know what I'm talking about? And he, and he wants David to play. So look at what he says. He says this. Now, the distressing evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the harp with his hand. David sits over there strumming a harp while Saul held a spear and David was playing music and Saul got upset because he could not handle the feelings that he has, not so much about David, but about what's going on in his own life. And so the Bible says that he takes the spear and he throws it at David, but he misses and it ends up in the wall. Let me ask you a question. Who is Saul actually fighting? Right. On the surface, it looks like he's just fighting David. But, 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 but I wonder how many times in my life I thought I was fighting someone or something, but in reality, what I was really fighting, the real battle was in me. The real battle was not the battle with them, but it was the battle within. The real battle was not the battle with them, but it was the battle within. And before I can preach about David, I have to preach about Saul. I've got to do it. I got to do it because I need to confess to you. There are times where I am more like Saul than I am like David. See, there's this thing called Disney, the, uh, Disney theology and Disney theology is basically where whenever you read a scripture, you tend to think that you are the victor in the story. So when you read David, you tend to be like, Oh, I'm David and someone else is Goliath, Right. Or when you, when you read about the disciples, oh, I'm Matthew and someone else is Judas. 
You see what I'm saying? And you tend to put yourself in the shoes of the victor and never the villain. But if we're gonna be real this morning, we are more like the villains than we are the victors. Y'all don't wanna talk about that. But that's the truth. That's the truth. And we have to look at what Saul is doing because too often we are fighting the wrong battles. We are trying to kill what God is trying to use. We are trying to kill what God is trying to use. And oftentimes what happens is we end up exploding on people, taking things out on people just because they're in proximity, not because they're the real issue. And we say, well, listen, if that person can only get themselves together. No, 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 if you could get yourself together. That's what you really should be saying. If you can get yourself together. Because what we see in Saul is Saul is a walking, talking civil war. He's a walking, talking civil war. He is fighting within himself. And the greatest enemy is not Satan, it's you. The greatest enemy is not Satan, it's you. And oftentimes you end up wasting your energy fighting the wrong things, fighting the wrong things. In World War II, they used these things called D-Day dummies. And what they did with these D-Day dummies is, is uh, when they were uh, uh, battling the Germans is, is they wanted to get the Germans to go into a certain place so that way they could land, but also they wanted to use up the German weaponry. And so what they would do is they would take these planes and they would drop these dummies and they would parachute these dummies from the sky. And the Germans would then be shooting at these dummies, shooting at these fake enemies, shooting at these decoys, and they were wasting their ammunition. And we do the same thing. Oftentimes we waste our ammunition on fake dummies, on fake fights. We, we waste our battles and our energy, not on the real enemy, but on what we perceive to be the enemy. But in actuality, it's not. the Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are what? That they are not carnal, but they are mighty through God, through the pulling down of strongholds and casting down of what? Imaginations. Casting down of the things that are not real, the things that are imaginative, the things that are not true, right? And so oftentimes you may be fighting against the wrong thing. Let me give you an example. Maybe you're fighting against rage and anger and you're like, listen, I don't wanna be, I don't wanna have rage anymore. I don't wanna have anger anymore. And there's something within you fighting and you're trying to fight against rage and anger. But the real battle is not rage and anger. The real enemy is fear and control. The reason you're angry and you have rage is be, isn't because you're just angry and you have rage. It's really because you're fearful and you want control. And so you are wasting your time trying to fight a false enemy. Many times, watch this, you are fighting a behavior instead of the motive that drives that behavior. And usually the motive that drives that behavior or that thought pattern is tethered to some kind of idol, tethered to some kind of counterfeit God. Yeah. And so what happens is 
You have real fights, but fake victories. Because you're fighting against something and you're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought, I thought I was over this or why is this happening again? Or why do I have to keep fighting or what's going on? And you're just, you're pulling off the surface weeds, but you're never getting to the root. Right, right, yeah, right. So there you are out there again, gardening. There you are out there again, sweating. There you are out there again, trying to, you know, cut it up. And, and to, no, 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 you have to get to the root. That's where the real enemy is. And usually what happens is your motive that's driving the behavior is connected to an idol, to a counterfeit God. See, because idols give us a sense of control. You say, well, how do I know where my idol is? You can often locate your idol by looking at your nightmares. You can often locate your idols by looking at your nightmares. If your nightmare is rejection, if you hate rejection, if you don't like to be rejected, if you don't like the feeling of rejection, then you will do whatever it takes not to be rejected. You'll say what you need to say, hang out with who you need to hang out, do what you need to do, lie to do it, whatever it is. You, however you need to present yourself, however you need, you'll do whatever it takes so you're not rejected. So that way people like you. So you're, you're people pleasing and you're doing all, you know, and, and you're doing whatever it takes. Not, not, be, not because you're a nice guy. No, 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 no. It's because you don't want to be rejected. But it's under the facade of, oh yeah, this guy's cool. He's just nice to everybody and he's friendly to everybody and he never argues. He never says anything, you know, controversial and he never, he's just always so, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's because all you want to do is be liked. And so you won't confront anything. You won't have real discussions and you won't confront and you will not hold people accountable because you don't want to be rejected. Are you guys hearing this? Y'all think about cheeseburgers? I know. <laughs> See, because counterfeit gods come in structures. Sin in our heart affects our basic motivational drives. So, in, in other words, some people are strongly motivated by influence and power. Influence and power. While others are motivated by approval and appreciation. Some want emotional and physical comfort more than anything else. Others want uh, security and control of their environment. People with deep idol of power, they don't mind being unpopular to gain influence. See, there's some people on the other spectrum where that's all they'll be is controversial or that's all they'll be is domineering, right? Because, because what it really is, is they don't, I don't care if you don't like me, I'm gonna say what I wanna say. I'm gonna I keep it real. I keep it real, you know, and, and da, da, da. And you come in and you're all that hot and you're all, you know, baby, you try to, you know, take over conversations. And when you went to the room, you know what I'm saying? And, and, but, but it's really because your idol is power. You don't wanna be in an environment where you have to give power to someone else. That's, power is your idol. And so you'll do whatever it is to keep control of power whatever that means, right? But people that are motivated by approval, they'll gladly lose power and control as long as everybody thinks nice of them, as long as everybody thinks well of them. Each of these idols come up in different ways and surfaces. For instance, um, things like money, spouses, children, right? Right? The, the, there are deeper idols within those things. Oftentimes what happens is uh, we want to, 
We want to, because we're looking at behaviors and not looking at what's beneath, what, what happens is we begin to uh, set our lives up in such a way and we make plans for ourselves and what we should do based on our behavior, but not really based on the idol that's driving it. Okay? And so, the, the, in other words, if money is an idol, the, the, the person will use money to serve this idea because they want to feel superior. They want to make sure they have the greatest car in the church parking lot. That's important to them. It's important to them that they have the biggest TV screen out of all of the small groups. It's important to them. It's important to them. Why? Because status makes them feel superior. Status makes them feel like they're doing a better job in life than someone else. They are successful. How do you define success? And Saul is here and and he's realizing that there is something that's driving him that's deeper than just envy and jealousy. But he has an idol. And so Saul, in his attempt to spear David, misses and hits the wall. And when this happens, David has a choice. David has a choice. Does he grab the spear, yank it out the wall, and throw it back at Saul? Now, we know that if David does that, David doesn't miss. We know that, we know that listen, if you're going to throw a spear at David, you better lock it in because you got one chance. One chance. Because you know if he grabs that sucker, he's going to get your head. And so David has, uh, he, David has a choice on what he wants to do. Does he grab the spear and chuck it back or not? His hand remains on the harp. So Saul has a spear and David has a harp. And if they're in a fight, who would you say has the upper hand? you would say Saul. That's what you would naturally say, right? Because I don't know about you, but if you're about to get in a fight, if you're about to get in a fight and you have an option, you can grab a spear or you can grab a heart. I don't know about you, I'm going for the spear. 10 out of 10 times, I'm going for the spear. Because what am I going to do with the heart? What am I going to do with that thing? Right? I'm going for the, but, but, and, and so it looks as though Saul has the upper hand. But see, we have to understand that the way we fight is different than how the world fights. Because what we recognize is that our worship is our weapon. Our worship is our instrument. And so when Saul misses, David has a decision. And he doesn't throw it back. And when we see this, we see that David begins to understand that he is in a physical battle, an emotional battle, a mental battle, and a spiritual battle. And from this, all of this begins to get expressed in the Psalms. So now we get a a small picture of his struggle. So now we can understand his strength. You guys ready? Okay, I'm trying to hurry here. Watch this. So again, Psalms 119. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. 
I love your law. I love your law. So what is his law? What was it? What's the law? What is the law? Well, the law is another way of talking about the word of God. Well, why would the entire Bible be referenced as a law? Well, there's a few reasons, but one is this, is because the Bible is authoritative. In other words, it's law. It's, these aren't suggestions. These aren't suggestions. If God is king, and he is, right? Then, then what he says is authoritative. If God is holy and righteous, and he is, then what he says matches with reality. It's accurate. If God is sovereign, and he is, then that means that God completely controls everything. And that means he can prepare all of the prophets and all of the apostles by everything that happened in their lives, their experiences, their personality, their education, even their biases to write and produce exactly what he wanted to have in the Bible. In other words, the Bible is truth. It's, true. it's not a truth. It, 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 it's not one of the truths. It's the truth. It's the truth. One of the most wonderful experiences that you can do, but you probably won't, is go through Psalms 119. And all 176 verses, that's a lot of verses. A lot of verses. I'm setting you up for a challenge. Y'all ready? And just choose everything that it says about what the word of God does for you. Go through all 170 and just, and just circle or highlight everything that, that it says about what the word of God does for you. And you know what you'll discover? You'll discover that it frees you. It frees you. It frees you. That the law frees you. The law frees you. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought real freedom was having less limitations, not more. I thought that's what real freedom was, to have less limitations, not more, right? I mean, that's what society teaches. That's what culture, that's the direction culture's going, right? See, modern people like to see freedom as a complete absence of any constraints, of any constraints. You don't tell me what how to live my life. You don't tell me what to do. You do you, I do me. You live you, I live me, you know, free of constraints, but almost like what Pastor Dan said this morning, when you think of a fish, now how a fish breathes is it absorbs uh, uh, oxygen from water, not from air, right? right? It absorbs oxygen from water, not from air. And it is free if it restricts itself to water, right? If a fish all of a sudden says, well, no one's going to tell me where to live and how to live my life. Water. I don't have to be restricted to water. I'm going to get up on this land. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to live on this land. What's going to end up happening very quickly? The fish is going to suffocate and die. The fish is going to suffocate and die, right? It's not more free. It's less free. It broke off its limitation of having to be in water. But is it more free or less free? It's less. It's less. See, we are only truly free if we can honor the reality of our nature, of the, of the purpose in which we were created. The same is with airplanes and birds. If they violate the laws of aerodynamics, 
they don't soar higher, they crash. If they stay within the laws, then they soar. Do you understand that? In other words, look at this. Tim Keller says this. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones that fit with the realities of our own nature for this world. That's what real freedom is. Real freedom isn't the absence of of restrictions, but it's finding the right ones that fit in the reality of how we were created. See, when you say, God set me free, you're free to do what? I'm free, I'm free in Jesus' name. To do what? You are now free to live under the purpose in which you were created. But you're not free to just to live outside of that purpose because you'll die. And you might be saying, okay, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, you know, but, but, but okay, I, don't, I, I get it, but I have a hard time loving the law though, Pastor Roger. I, I don't know if I love the law. Because here, here's why I don't know if I love the law is because uh, no matter how hard I try, I can't seem to live up to it. So it's difficult for me to read some of those passages because I can't live up to that. And, and this is what's beautiful about Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene and you know there's the Ten Commandments, right? So he says, you know, don't, you know, don't commit adultery, don't murder. Well, Jesus comes on the scene and you know, Jesus is all about grace, right? But then he has this little thing, this little thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes along and says, well, let's look at this, this law thing. Let's look at this law thing. Let's talk about how to be free. And then, and so Jesus says this, he says, you heard not to commit adultery, right? And everybody said, yeah, we heard that. And Jesus says, well, I tell you that even if you lust after someone in your mind or in your heart, then you are now an adulterer. Okay, wait a minute, what? Jesus, I was having a hard time just as it is. And now if I even just, if I even think about it, Jesus, what are you doing, man? Right? But Ten Commandments, don't murder. Don't murder. Jesus says, well, listen, if you even get angry at somebody, you've done murder. You're a murderer. What? What? What are you talking about? Jesus, you're not lowering the bar. You're raising it. What are you doing? What are you doing? I already couldn't meet it here. How do you expect me to meet it there? And Jesus says, I don't. See, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. How am I supposed to meet that? And here's the great news. You don't have to because he does it for you. He does it for you. You're right, you never will. But the good news is that you don't have to because he did it for you. Matthew 5 said, Jesus comes and says, don't think I've come to abolish the law, but I've come not to abolish them, but fulfill them. See, when the law is understood in its entirety and that its aim is that Jesus Christ gets the glory, therefore Jesus Christ will forever be glorified in our salvation and we will forever lean on his righteousness. And the reason we can stand before God justified, for those who may be new don't know, justified means just as if I never sinned. The reason we can stand before God just as if I never sinned justified is because we have to understand it's not because he took the law away, but it's because we stand on the grounds of Jesus Christ's obedience and his bloodshed and his yes. We stand on his yes. 
We stand on his blood. And the minute you begin to get that twisted is the minute you're gonna have problems because then all of a sudden this thing called Christianity is going to turn into meritous morality where you have to feel like you have to earn your way into God's presence. See, the reason why some of y'all didn't move this morning when Pastor Dan talked about the presence is because you think, well, I don't know if, I earn, if I've earned God's presence. Well, what makes you think you can earn it? When in a million trillion years do you think you will ever be good enough to earn it? Never. 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 God could allow your life to live for 5,000 years, 5 million years, and you will never have earned it. Ever. You see? Because it's on his righteousness. And the more you realize that, the more everything in your life begins to change. To the degree you get this is to the degree that you will love the law. We'll love the law. And then things like prayer and, and fasting and reading your word and all that stuff will begin to flow from that, you see. Because there's a difference. There's a difference. You have to know that you have to love the law. If you are going to win this fight, if you are going to be victorious, you have to love the law. He says, I love the law, but then look what he says in verse 114, about to end. He says, you are my hiding place and my shield. My hope is in your word. You are my hiding place and my shield. My hope is in your word. Any, any words standing out there that we've heard this morning? You are my hiding place. Remember that from this morning? You are my hiding place and you are my shield. Isn't that crazy how this is going to work out, Pastor Eric? You are my hiding place. Pastor Dan didn't know what we were talking about. <laughs> hiding place, and you are my shield. See, for, for some of you, when you think about fighting, you think, wait a minute, I thought fighting had nothing to do with hiding. I thought, I thought hiding meant that you're just sort of running away, that, that you're not being a man. And for many of you, you need to redefine what masculinity means. You need to redefine what masculinity means. Because here's the question. What defines my masculinity? My culture or the gospel? What defines masculinity? The culture or the gospel? See, the pagan old world view of masculinity was this. It was all about being a hunter. It was all about being stoic. It was all about being fierce. So when you were of a certain age, uh, so, you know, they would send you out as a boy and you'd have to go out there and you'd have to fight something or kill something or live off the land. Or, so you, so you'd, you'd go out from the tribe and you would do some sort of ritual that would then make you a man. That's, that's how pagan old antiquity understood and defined uh, masculinity. It was hardness without gentleness. It was fierceness without tenderness. So when you read all of the pagan myths of who their heroes were, they were all barbarians because that's what a real man was. Now bring it to the present. To the present in our mo modern thought is there is no absolute truth. There's no way we can really know anything. 
There's no way we can really know if God exists, if we can really know what's right or wrong. There's no way we can really know anything. And so now it's up to the individual conscious to decide. It's all about what your truth is. And now it's up to you to define what's real. You see what I'm saying? And they say, well, listen, they say, we believe that you should not tell anybody what to believe. But that's exactly what they're doing. They're telling us that we should believe not to tell everybody what to believe. You can't escape it. You can't escape it. It's impossible. So they say there's no real answers out there. There's no real truth. No one can really know anything about right and wrong. And so, and so the self is the ultimate. It's all about you and how you feel and your rights. It's not about laying your rights down for others. No, 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 no. It's about your rights and all about you, right? And so what does that do for masculinity? It completely, it completely rejects the notion of maleness. That's what modern society does, is because there's no real truth, because we don't know the right wrong, then there's no really such thing as maleness. We don't know. We don't know. That's what modern culture will say. We don't know. We don't know if you're a male or not. There's no such thing, right? But for Christians, we have a problem. We have a problem because if we look at paganism and their understanding of masculinity, it would not, it would not include things like humility, weakness, modesty, vulnerability, or nurture, right? Because to, those, because to the pagan, those things do not come naturally to men. That's what they say. It's not natural. But the modern understanding of masculinity, if it even exists, is all softness but no hardness. See, the pagan is stoic. The pagan, you detach from your feelings. You don't talk about your feelings. You don't, talk, you don't go there. You don't talk about it. You don't talk about it. Modernism says, no, 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 not only do you talk about it, but your feelings control you. Your feelings create your reality. That's what they do. And to the Christian, this becomes impossible. It becomes impossible. And so what you have to do is you have to look at Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, how do you define masculinity? How do you define it? Because to the Christian, Jesus is the one perfect person who fully embodied what it means to be human and is the new Adam. He is the new Adam and is the definition of what it means to be a man and everything else is false. I bring that up because your culture in some way has shaped how you view your manhood, your culture. It could even be your ethnicity, Hispanic, Asian, Pacific Islander, white, whatever. Has defined uh, America, Americanism, right? To be a man's man, what do, you, what do you gotta do to be a man's man? You gotta know how to do what? Like what? Fix cars, right? Know about sports, you know what I'm saying? What else? I mean, if you, a real man's man, you know? Great, great athletic, don't cry, you know? Maybe even the pitch of your voice matters, right? The deeper it is, the more manly you are. 
right? When you come in control, you're in control. You're dominant. Because that's how America has defined masculinity. That's it. Well, that's what a real man is. But see, what Jesus does is he comes and he says, listen, it's not about whatever culture you're used to. It's about kingdom culture. And what kingdom culture says is real men pray. Real men read their words. Real men know how to go and come before God and be broken. Real men know how to go. Not to act it like you have it all together. Come to Jesus Christ and say, yeah, I got it all together. Jesus, No, you don't. You're a liar. You don't got it all together. You're messed up and you're broken and you're playing it. And you just want everybody to think that you're holy and you got it together because you show up to everything and you made it to that. No, you ain't nothing. Don't act that way. Because that's not, Christianity is not about coming to Jesus and saying, okay, now I got it all together. If that's the case, you don't need Jesus. But it's about coming to Jesus and saying, I don't got it all together. That's what manhood looks like. That's what masculinity looks like. I don't care what other definition you give it, that's what it is. That's what it is. That's masculinity. That's what it looks like. And so when all of a sudden this verse talks about hiding, you know what's so crazy about that? Is not only do you have to know where not to hide, you have to know where to hide. Not only do you have to not know where not to hide, you have to know where to hide. Because he says this, he says, God, you are my hiding place. You are my hiding place. And see, what you need to understand is you better know where to hide. In other words, when you have the shield, what do you do if arrows come at it? You hide behind it. You're not like, well, I'm going to be a man. I don't need to hide. I'm just going to stand here and let all these arrows shoot me. Nah, you idiot. You're dead. Get behind the shield, homie. Right? You got to know where to hide. Why? Because weapons will be formed. Weapons will be formed. Arrows will be fired. The enemy is after you and he's not sleeping. He's not taking a break. He's not going to clock out. He is after you 24-7 and you got to know where to hide. You have to know where to hide. You got to know where to hide. Because the expectation of no attack is a setup for disappointment. And then all of a sudden you say, well, the church doesn't work and Pastor Eric's sermons don't work and tithing doesn't work and small groups don't work. No, it's because you didn't know where to hide. It's because you didn't know where to hide, you see. What's your hiding place? What is your hiding place? Where do you run to when things go crazy? Where do you run to to be able to get and recoup and get fired up again for the fight? Where do you run to for all of that when arrows are coming? You need to know where to run. You need to know where to hide. And you got to get that figured out before things start getting hard. You can't be figuring out in the middle of it. Arrows are flying. And you're like, where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? Oh my God. I don't know. Now, now by the time you go to Pastor Eric, you're bleeding. And you're all cut up. And you're like, you know what I mean? Half the time we get marriages that come in to be counseled. Bro, they needed to come in three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. But, but, the, but, but because you didn't strategically think of where am I going to hide when the arrows come? Then you're out there in the middle of battlefield trying to figure it out. And you're delivered, but you're damaged. You're delivered, but you're damaged. Where do you hide? Where do you run to? Where do you run to? Sometimes.
sometimes I think you're running to the very thing that you're trying to run away from. You're running to something that has the illusion of safety. The illusion of safety. You know what I mean? Where do you run to when things go? Well, I, I just work. I work overtime. Because I don't want to deal with nothing. So I'm just, I know I'm good here. I got accolades here. I do well here. People tell me I do good. So I'm going to do overtime. Because now somehow I feel good about it. I get that paycheck. Get a, get, you know what I mean? But I'm not going to deal with it over here. So when things get stressed, you know what I'm saying? Like you're not hurrying up and trying to get home to the wife and kids. Nah. It's not like you're like, okay, great. I'm going to clock out. I can't wait to get home and see my wife and see my kids. Nah. Right? For some of you, your hiding place is work. Where's your hiding place? Where's your hiding place? Where's your hiding place when you need to relieve some stress? Pornhub at 2 a.m.? Where's your hiding place? See, some of you guys are fighting porn. But that's just it. You're fighting the wrong enemy. See, you're coming, you're saying, well, I'm, I know, I just need to stop watching it. I just need to stop clicking on it. I just need to stop watching it. I just need to stop. Well, guess what? You ain't going to stop. You might stop for a month. You might stop for a couple weeks. You might stop for a year. But you ain't going to stop, stop. Why? Because what porn does for you is it gives you instant gratification and it keeps you in control because you want it and you want it now. And this is why it damages marriages because what happens is you come in and now when you have sex with your wife, it's all about her serving you and your pleasure because that's what you're used to. You wanna, you, you wanna have pleasure, it's all about you, it's all about selfishness, grab some porn real quick, bam. And so now it's not about serving her. This isn't a covenant thing between you and her. And now you guys are serving each other in this physically romantic way. No, 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 no. It's about, you know, come on. And it damages. It damages. Where do you hide? Where do you hide? Maybe you hide behind blame. Oh, maybe you hide behind blame. That's a good place to hide. Because it's always everybody else's fault. And blaming everybody else saves you from the inconvenience of having to change. Somebody, well, you know, if they didn't say this, and if that person, and if my dad didn't do this, and if my mom didn't do that, if it wasn't how I raised, and if this person, my, if my boss was like this, if the church was like that, it's easy to hide behind blame. Where's your hiding place? Video games? Sports? Where's your hiding place? What, what do you hide behind? Religion? Do you hide behind Religion? Because you're like, okay, wait a minute. If I, if I just cross off all these, all the, this checklist, you know, and if I'm super religious, then I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And now what you're doing is you're, you, you are obeying God, but only because he's useful. Only because he's a means to another end. The end is that you get paradise and you make sure that you are safe and you make sure that you are happy. So if in order for me to be happy, I have to do what God says, then I'm gonna do what God says. And so you're super religious, but not because God's the goal, but because your happiness is. And now you're just using God. What do you hide behind? What do you hide behind? What you need to know is this, the Bible says he who dwells in the shelter of the most high will rest in the shadow of the almighty. He who dwells in the shelter, the shelter, the strong tower, the refuge. He who does that will rest. The reason some of you guys are fighting and you're not resting is because you're not dwelling in the shelter of the most high. You're dwelling behind a fake 
facade of shelter. You're, you're hiding behind a fake shield. You're hiding behind a fake sense of security. You're hiding behind something. And, and, and you're running to different things when things get hard because that's whatever it is. And guess what? It's fake. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. You need to know where do you hide when things get wrong? Where do you hide when things go crazy? Where do you hide when you're going through hell and you're going through fire and you're going through trials? Where do you hide when suicide comes into your mind? Where do you hide when you're struggling with lust and temptation? Where do you hide when you feel like giving up and signing the divorce papers? Where do you hide when your kids are acting crazy and you don't know where to... Where do you hide when it's all coming out and it's all going loose and you force yourself to come to church with a smile and you have to force yourself to worship but the reality is the minute you hit that parking lot you know you're faced with the same crap and the same issues and the same struggles and the same situations and where do you hide where do you go where do you go where do you go and you know what I hear the Holy Spirit doing and in fact let's get ready stand to your feet and I want the altar workers to come up because you know what I hear the Holy Spirit doing right now is I hear the Holy Spirit calling you out from behind that place I hear the Holy Spirit calling you out from behind that place. And say, come out, come out, come out, come out. Come out, come out, come out. Come out from behind that false sense of security. Come out from behind that. That ain't a safe place. That's not where you should hide. Don't keep running to that. Don't keep running to that thought pattern. Don't keep running to, no, 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 no. Come out from there. 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 You need to know where to go. You need to know where to go. And the reality is, is that some of you, you need to cry out to God. You need to repent. And I mean really repent. Because you've just been trying to, you've just been trying to be your own God. That's all you're doing. That's all you're doing. That's all you're doing. And if you stand here and say, well, I don't need to repent of nothing. I'm not really feeling it. Ah, my friend, you need it more than you know. You need it more than you know. You need it more than you know. Come out, don't, don't hide behind that insecurity. Don't hide behind it. That's not going to do anything for you. It's not going to do nothing for you. Don't go there. Don't go there. Maybe for some of you, 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 you hide behind your skill set. You hide behind, behind the fact that you're really talented in a certain area. You're, you hide behind the fact that maybe you make a certain amount of money and, and, and you have a certain amount of success and you hide behind that. You hide behind that. No, 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 no. God says, come out from behind that run into my presence let me show you where to go because as the arrows are coming against you as the arrows are piercing your life and as the enemy's trying to destroy you while you're in the midst of this fight there's a place that you can go to rejuvenate there's a place that you can go to rest and I mean really rest I don't just mean rest in the sense of you lay your head down at night and you get some physical rest. No, no, no. You need a deeper kind of rest than that. Because some of y'all, you going to sleep tired and you waking up tired. You tired. You need rest under the rest. You need Jesus Christ. This is what being a man really looks like. This is what fighting really looks like. It's knowing what to not hide in and knowing who to hide in. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to ask these altar workers to, to begin to just go, go and, and begin to pray with you and to begin to lay hands and, and, they, and they're going to just move in the spirit and they're going to begin to prophesy over you and, and they're just going to pray for whatever it is. And what, and, what, and what I want you to do is I just want you to begin to repent behind, but for, for running to things that you shouldn't have ran to, for hiding behind things that you shouldn't hide behind, for, for you're tired because you you're wasting your energy 
on the wrong enemy and now you're out of ammunition. You're so tired you can't even pray right now. You're so tired you can't even really cry out to God. You see what I'm saying? You need God's rest. You need his presence. And you need his love. This is how we fight. This right here, what you're doing right now, this is how you fight. Jesus. Yes, come on, let's sing something. 